Welcome to the Collections by Michelle Brown Show, a show about people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality as they create change. This episode is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services. Welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. I'm your host, Michelle Brown. Each week, we'll be talking with people living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality and creating change. Today, I'm joined by Bridie Mae Johnson. A military kid born in Clovis, New Mexico, Bridie grew up in Saginaw, Michigan. With Native American, a little bit of Polish, and African American heritage, Johnson brings a unique perspective to all she does, drawing upon her roots to build spaces where diversity and inclusion can flourish. A licensed social worker, Johnson worked as Director of Programs at the Ruth Ellis Center from 2007 to 2009. Before joining the staff at the center, she served as the first volunteer crisis counselor and as an executive board member from 1999 to 2007. She's been a national trainer on transgender inclusion in the domestic violence sexual assault movement in Michigan and trained on this research in California. She moved to Atlanta, Georgia where she worked with the Restorative Justice Department, the judicial system on LGBTQ informational topics, and for Georgia's Department of Family Services, helping foster parents be better equipped to handle the children that came into their homes. Upon returning to Michigan, Johnson was employed at Saginaw County Youth Protection Council as a Division Director of Interlink Services Division, a voluntary agency providing crisis management intervention, temporary shelter, medical care, food, transportation, educational programming, and referral services for runaway youth. She recently returned to the Metro Detroit area, joining the staff of the American Indian Health and Family Services, a nonprofit health center whose mission is to empower and enhance the physical, spiritual, emotional, and mental well-being of American Indian, Alaska Native individuals, families, and other underserved populations in Southeast Michigan. In her various positions, Bridie has become aware of and researched the problem of human trafficking, especially of youth and members of the LGBTQ community. Based on her work in this area, she submitted a proposal to present at the 2018 Creating Change Conference in Washington, D.C. Her proposal was accepted. Researchers have found that of those interviewed, nearly one-fifth of homeless youth in the United States and Canada are victims of human trafficking, including those trafficked for sex, labor, or both. 
Bridie hopes to educate attendees at Creating Change in her workshop of a prevalence of trafficking, signs of its activity, and what communities, organizations, and individuals can do to not only protect youth, but provide safe spaces for those at risk or escaping trafficking situations. Friday, welcome to Collections by Michelle Brown. How are you doing today? Hi, thank you, Michelle. I'm doing great. I appreciate you so much for having me on the show. Well, it seems like we've gone back like for years. I remember when you were here in Michigan and uh, you were working with the Rufella Center and then you moved to Atlanta and it just turned by a quirk of fate that you started working with another friend of mine, Betty Covertier, and, you know, so we stayed in touch there. Then you came back to Michigan, and, you know, you were in Saginaw, but now you're back in the metro Detroit area, and I'm glad to have you back. How's it feel being back here in Michigan? Well, thank you. Let me tell you, it feels like I'm home, Michelle. I was dying and trying to get back. I love Atlanta. Don't get me wrong. The sunshine was great. I loved the radio show I did with Betty. Um, the work I did down there with the Love Coalition, trying to start a little bit of what Ruth Ellis did. And we actually opened a school called Pride School down in Atlanta. So did some good work, but I missed Michigan, and I missed Detroit more than anything. I came back. My dad's up in Saginaw, and I tried to make that work. But I, I had an anchor in for the city, and so here I am. Now, you were born in New Mexico, right? Yes, Clovis. Okay, so did you grow up in Michigan, or did you move here as a child? I I moved here when I was about seven years old. Um, Mm -hmm. I was actually an Air Force brat. My dad was in the military, so um, we moved up here for work, for his work, and then when he got out, he stayed at GM, Generous Motors, so that's how (laughs) he ended up. (laughs) <laughs> up here in Saginaw. Um, so I was about seven years old when I came to Saginaw. I didn't come to Detroit till I got my master's degree um, in mm-hmm. about seven. So. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what, you know, you do a lot of work. You've done a lot of work with youth, particularly with LGBT youth. And in social work, what led you to that, that wanting to do that kind of work with your life? Oh, that. That's an amazing question. You know, to be honest, I guess I would have to say Ruth Ellis, um, you know, for lack of better words, when I was doing my internship, when I had started um, at Wayne State University to get my master's, I lived in Ferndale, so I would ride Woodward down to the city for school. And every morning when I was doing my field placement in Project Wraparound, which was in Highland Park High School when it was, The kids were out at 5.30 in the morning. My trans girls were out on the streets, and they were so um, devoted and committed to that experience because I would see them every day. We were honking and, you know, doing the what's up, who's bravo when I was driving by um, when I would go into the school in the morning. And I'm talking about 5, 6 a.m. They were still out. I'm like, anybody that would do that all night long would do something else if they had the opportunity. And I happened to meet Dr. Kofi and, um, you know, heard a lot about the Ruth Ellis Center from in between the lines. And so then, you know, I was honored to meet Ruth and join. I was actually the first volunteer therapist for Ruth Ellis Center to go back to, like, 99. Um, And it was when it was only open on Wednesday, and they had the little um, space upstairs 
uh, over there off of Six Mile. And so I would come in on Wednesday when it was open, or I would come in by call if they called me and they had a, a youth that was in need of uh, crisis counseling or therapy. I did it free of charge pro bono um, before I joined, joined the board. You know, I can recall, you know, I mean, and the fact that you were so engaged with those young people. And I remember one time when you were talking about the ones who had gone through the program, had been in the housing, and were graduating from high school, and you were, like, so proud. A mother couldn't have been, you know, a biological mother couldn't have been so proud. Was that like the icing on the cake for you, for someone who had you know, gone from, like, riding the bus and seeing them and then to being on the board to becoming a staff member and working with them, then to see, you know, some kids, like, come out on the other side okay. Yes. I mean, of course, that's that's always been my passion. My motto is social workers, we do it for the outcomes, not the income. So it was always very important for me to see, and I knew I couldn't save the world, and I had no intent on that, but I never worked harder than a kid, but I never let a kid that worked hard um, hang in either. So with that kind of process, um, I've had some long relationships. I have some kids from Ruth Ellis that still call me today, um, you know, uh, in in my working path. So just seeing kids... um, Number one, call me when they need me, but reach out when they've made it are are some amazing feats. Um, I even had a client once in Highland Park that um, I worked with her for a little while, and about three years later, a teacher said, I'm telling you, somebody wrote a story about you and turned it in as their mentor or their person of, you know, interest. And I'm like, no, that name doesn't ring a bell to me. I don't think that's me. And she's like, I'm going to send you the story. And she sent it to me, and it was my client's sister who was then in college. And I guess I had made such an impact on her life, and I didn't even know her. I met her once or twice when I was dropping, you know, someone off. But to see her um, life changed from me dropping somebody off a couple times was a pretty amazing feat. So that was that's kind of what it's been for me. Well, that, I mean, that's just, like, amazing. You know, I've done a couple of shows on the Ruth Ellis Center, some with staff and some with the young people. And it is that kind of place to where, like you said, you never know where later on down the line these young people are going to go. But to have been there and, like you said, you worked as hard as they did, and to see them come through, that has to be like, you know, I mean, there's no award or anything that they can put up there to show you that, you know, I mean, there's no plaque, nothing. I mean, that's just like such great work. When you left. Amazing. Go ahead. Well, you, well, you should be, I mean, you know, that's a feather in your cap. I mean, I mean, you know, you never know who it is. So you're from Saginaw. Well, I've talked to to a couple of people from Saginaw also. So are you sag nasty? No, I'm sagging (laughs) awesome. (laughs) <laughs> I'm saying awesome, Michelle. Um, and that's Sue Bogan. And Saginaw has been working. I'm actually um, going to be a teacher at Saginaw Valley State University in the Juvenile Justice and Family Systems, but actually in the social work program um, in January. I'm excited about that. But Saginaw awesome is, is, is the word we're using now to um, take away the connote of the nastiness because really it's mm-hmm. an amazing 
they're coming up. They got Delta College coming into the city um, and, uh, you know, some of those new biking ramps and the things that you see in Detroit and in the larger city is coming to breath. We have a new farmer's market in 2018 at the, um, is it the Bobian building, I believe? Uh, over off of Washington. We have a farmer's market now, but they're redoing it indoors, so that'll be more um, user-friendly in the sense for families to visit and patrons. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I think that's great that you that you have, like, reclaimed that word and changed it, although the people who I talked to, they were very proud of their Saginaw, Saginaw roots. And how do you feel growing up in Saginaw, but then you've been down here, you've been in Atlanta. What has being from Saginaw, that old Rust Belt city, how has that influenced your way of thinking, how you work with people, particularly young people? Um, you know, I, for me, um, my life has been unique in the sense of um, I had the opportunity to grow up, I guess I would say, um, in the sticks and in the city. So when I was young, growing up, I lived in the city of Arrowwood City High School, or City um, Elementary School, and then I ended up uh, out in Hemlock. So Hemlock is a real, 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 real suburb, a real rural uh, area. You know, I remember kids not having shoes, so more Appalachian population than, um, than you know, than some. So it was a very homogenous hmm. um place and I didn't fit uh, the color of my skin and and probably a lot of who I was but you know I got through that experience and moved right back to Saginaw and did all my work um, for the Underground Railroad and all with city um, child abuse and neglect council and um, you know city places for sure and I worked in the city with my consumers you know as well Um, so I'm a city girl but I definitely uh, did have some hay and did do things like jump in a silo as <laughs> right, something to get in trouble in when you were growing up, you know, so some non-traditional things, I guess you'd say some non-city things, um, although I did always go into roller skate. I never, you know, never let that slide. Now, for those who don't know you, how do you identify ethnically? Oh, wow. Yeah, um, I would say a mutt. No. Um, <laughs> I love that. Right. My name being um, supposedly this strong Irish name, which I'm not Irish at all, but I have another story to tell if you have a minute for that. Oh, um, yeah. About my name. Um, it's probably PG-13, though, so I don't know where it fits. But um, I am my, on my mother's side, uh, I'm Native American and Caucasian. Um, and that breaks down into a little bit of Polish and Welsh. And on my father's side, I am white and black. Um, he's a Johnson, and that stems from generations back, so um, ingrained in slavery time um, is how I got some of those roots from what I've seen in my own ancestry. So I'm a mix, a definite mutt is what I've always, what I've always said. <laughs> And, you know, and like I said, I know you, and I know that you you have all of these, this intersectionality from all these different backgrounds, but you seem to be, like, at home wherever you are. Like, when you were at Ruth Ellis, when I've seen you out in the community, it's like, you know, you're one of us. You're, you're like that. But how do you... How do you hold on to all those identities or honor them while being you? 
Uh, you know, that's, that's interesting. Uh, it's, it's a lot of, um, a lot of, not confrontation, but uh, truth and resolution. So when I talk to people um, and we're at a table and they say something like Indian giving, I have to stop the conversation. Or when, you know, well, I'm, it's my, you know, I'm a lesbian that can either come out or not come out. So I have many identities that I have to um, raise the community in the sense of, you know, I hear things all over. But you're right. I would say I'm comfortable wherever I'm at because my spirit and my energy kind of um, lead me and guide me um, from my ancestors, uh, you know, to today. So I'm always driven that way. And whatever I'm doing, I'm going to be passionate about it because I'm going to love it or I'm not going to do it. You know, and mm-hmm. that's all- always what I've done and I think I loved Ruth Ellis Center on the board um, working to get their money a little more than I did as director of programs um, making money for whatever you know lack of words um, but you know I really 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 am passionate about all the different um, entities and people I come across I just love people you know and their diversity and to learn from them language and culture and I found out I used to say I was culturally competent now I say I'm culturally humble um, because mm. I understand more um than that if that makes sense so mm-hmm. yeah yeah you know now you know you're going to have to tell me about the name because i will always say i have known people and they want to go like birdie and i said it's not birdie it's brighty okay so you got to tell us the, the name story okay well two things <laughs> I, had, I had an irish doctor that told me that um Dr. Byrne, he's from Saginaw. He he told me, well, your your name is like, you know, Amy in Ireland. It's it's for, it's a nickname for Bridget, and everybody's Bridie, but they spell it B R I G H T Y. And I said, oh, really? You know, and I do have a little Irish Welsh in me on my grandmother's side, on my father's side of the family, but not much, not enough to be namesake um, for any means. And so um, I was always peculiar about my name, and it was so funny. I had. Uh, Okay, you said you're ready for this. So I had a social studies teacher in seventh grade, and of course, you know, I had a little ADHD. That's where some of that passion mm-hmm. comes from. I was in the front of the class um, to pay attention, right? And I had a teacher that was a little inappropriate, and he, um, what I named as Pocket Pool Powell, because his his last name was Mr. Powell. If he's out there listening, sorry. Um, <laughs> out of pocket pool through the day and I got tired of seeing it in the front row so I challenged him like I do people in the community when when cultural um, insensitivity is going on and you know challenge them or push back with um, him to not maybe play so much in front of me and so Mm -hmm. he was unnerved by that and the next semester we had Brighty of the Grand Canyon and that's a famous mule um, in the Grand Canyon uh, that's they have books and videos about, believe it or not, because we studied that Grand Canyon, Brighty the Grand Canyon, mm. long than we probably should have. Um, but I believe that was a get back and, you know, donkey, jackass, whatever. So he <laughs> found out that there was that there was another Brighty in this world. And so, yeah, I went back to my mom and dad, and I'm like, so where did you get my name? And they were, you know, they told me this little story about how, um, and there were other lies, Mom, if you're out there listening. Um that they told me, you know, oh, we saw you, you're going to be Melanie, and you're born with that smile and the energy and your spirit, and we just couldn't name you Melanie. It was Brighty. Brighty it was. And so they named Brighty. But then I found out shortly after that um, 
they actually went to the Grand Canyon for their honeymoon. So, yeah. I, oh, wow. <laughs> I don't know. I don't know, Michelle. Um, well, I, hey, <laughs> we get our names in all kinds of ways, you know. <laughs> so, yeah. Mm-hmm. Righty it is. So, so I know that you voluntarily assisted the program manager for the LGBTQI coalition, and it was called I Am for Survivors Project. What was that about? Okay, that was um, that was back in the day. I think it was around 2005. I started um, with the Michigan Coalition of Domestic Violence and Sexual Assault through the NASW Michigan chapter. I was on a um, SIG group, an LBGT SIG group, so we met on the weekends. I met amazing individuals like James Toy, Stephen Ross, mm, mm-hmm. um, oh, Andre Wilson. I met, you know, Dr. Kofi Odama there. You know, I met a lot of individuals that, that, that kind of um, stemmed my framework. Uh, they were my mentors in taught me uh, more than I was probably even ready to learn. I was very young and very eager. I did more volunteer stuff than paid just so I could be out there and experience stuff. Um, And so, geez, I might have lost my question. What was your question to me? Well, I just wanted to know, you know, because I know that that dealt with, you know, uh, domestic and sexual violence. And so, you know, I'm sorry. It's okay sexual assault with one of the other members and we did live research around the state of Michigan we actually went to 27 domestic violence shelters to look at their mm. policy and procedure manuals for trans inclusion and this was in like 2004 they weren't ready for us some some you know some were ready to get ready but um, it was a very interesting experience because you know when it comes to trans inclusion they were like well you know uh, and we had already did it with Ruth's house you know and say we were working on mm-hmm. like, you know, Michigan to allow you know a stud and a in a trans female to be in a room together and we'd have a lot less hanky-panky than we would with two girls and we had to you know explain that and that took a lot of time um, so in that same explanation for policy it's like if you have two women in a room together those women don't shower together they don't change together they take time privacy they shut the door one goes in the bathroom one goes there who checks the parts? That's what I wanted to know. That was my, mm-hmm. you know, me. Who checks the parts? You know, these people are coming in for shelter. They're people. They're individuals. Like Dr. Craig Beverly, there's a human floor in which no man falls below. So mm-hmm. we should be able to accommodate individuals um, in their needs. And if we have a trans female that needs shelter, let's make that happen. So we worked with those agencies to have policy, protocol. It's now in HUD regulations. I mean, there's still lags, you know, for sure, but um, for trans inclusion. So I was one of the beginning research to do some of that work. And we also were able to do live research with trans individuals and gain from their experience of either not seeking shelter for domestic violence due to being trans or what that looked like for them if they did choose to seek shelter and we took that information to those agencies and said here see this is how important this is and then you know me I pushed back so then we came to Ruth Ellis Center and we came to Affirmation so we came to the LBGT spaces and said hey look we need training on domestic violence too because we play too much as gay boys and as couples we play too much and we fight and Mm -hmm. 
lot of that needs to be looked at um, through those intersections and systems and um, education through, you know, psychoeducation will these, you know, individuals learn that it's not okay to walk up and slap me in the back of my head because you miss me, you know, or whatever that mm-hmm. cultural perspective. Um, and so, yeah, I did that work for a couple of years voluntarily um, to just kind of get that out there. Did you ever interact with the police department? Because, you know, I've talked to police people and, like, they've come a long way, but there's still that point where, like, if it's a heterosexual couple, oh, yeah, it's domestic abuse. But if it's a gay couple, it's like, okay, those two girls are those two guys. Or like you said, it's a trans person. Well, you know, that sort of, like, wanting to criminalize what they, well, if they were not there doing that, they wouldn't get attacked. So did you ever any time uh, interact with police or do any work with them? Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness. Um, probably all 20-some years I have interacted and worked mm. with police. I have done trainings. When you do trainings for police, you have to do what's called roll call. So mm-hmm. you go in there at 7 a.m., 7.30, 8 o'clock, 8.30, 9 o'clock, 9.30, take a break, go back at 11 o'clock, 11.30, 12 o'clock, 12.30 to get the different shifts when you have really large departments. Um, and then I'm also doing the sex trafficking work now. So, uh, you know, working in Saginaw County, um, where I started, well, that's not where I started. I started in Atlanta. Well, I actually started in Detroit with the Ruth Ellis Center, but more recently, we'll say, um, you know, doing the sex trafficking work with youth. Um, I'm with the police all the time because they have those rare cases, and then what do we do? And when I was running the shelter for homeless kids, um, it was for four counties. It was Saginaw, Midland, Tuscola, and Gratiot County. So, you know, when we had those youth, in need, you know, we had to be that space for them in some senses. Or, um, you know, sometimes with trafficking, you got to put them to the other side of the state or the other side of the world to keep them safe. So, mm-hmm. well, you know, you know, we have talked like later on. I want to have you back on to talk about that that sex trafficking. But you know, I was at something recently, and they said how you know sometimes, particularly with LGBTQ youth, well, maybe the parents don't know you know, they put them out. I mean, it's unfortunately, it still happens. And that these kids are falling through the cracks, and some of them then are getting caught up in sex trafficking. Um, I know that you are still involved with the LGBTQ community, but with other communities and youth. How are you bringing all of this together, you know, like your, your years of experience working not only with Ruth Ellis, but in Saginaw, with all these different programs, how are you bringing all of this together to, like you said, you're going up to, to you'll be in Saginaw teaching. How are you, you moving all this forward? What do you see as the next steps in your work? Ooh, that's, that's a loaded question. I, I've been asked by the Mid-Michigan um, Human Trafficking Task Force to come back to Saginaw in January. So January 11th, and the 30th. On the 30th, we're doing for like nurses, doctors, um, lawyers, uh, healthcare systems, uh, like half day training in the morning. It's at St. Mary's, and then a half day in the evening. So I'll be doing like a, I'll be a panelist on that, and then I also have like an hour and a half session that's going to be talking about the LBGT um, traffic use specifically. Um, and so that's on the 11th, I think, and then on the 30th, they've asked me to do another encounter and there. So in the community, I'm, I'm, I come back, I'm talking about it. Um, I do most of my work for free, <laughs> or peanuts, mm-hmm. 
but but just because it's so important and I'm always on like the next topic or trend in trying to get that information out there before anybody else you know or, or you know or for lack of better words and I say like when it comes to LGBT youth and trafficking you know some of the specifics are the same things we know it's like lack of parental support um, but it's also this online stuff there's a huge huge epidemia with you know kids um, they can't um, always find people in their close-knit communities so they get online a lot more than um, maybe straight kids do for dating and so they come across a lot more bad experiences I've seen kids straight and gay you know that have came into the shelter and you know they're on Facebook one minute I hate my mom and then somebody's inboxing them well you can come live with us and you don't got to do dishes and life's going to be great and this kid's so mad and they're thinking in their frontal cortex of their brain and so they're like okay yeah this is way better than mom so here's my address and then they're there in an hour and they're picking the kid up and they're gone so it's not always mm. those stories that you think you know um or that are you know of, of, of you know the parents that don't care the kids that are put out it's even it's even my gay kids my lesbian kids you know that are that are at home with support from their parents that are getting abducted in you know in some senses yes it is the still horrific stories and thank goodness the Ruth Ellis Center is there and they do what they do for you know for those kids but it's a bigger you know bigger um, issue and a lot of it, like we say, it's so bad for LBGT because what 60% are homeless, uh, you know, and you know due to the lack of support of their parents and all the same statistics and things that we've known for years interface with like internet and dating and those kind of differences and it all just kind of comes together. But as for my work, it's going to just be to keep saving kids until I can't no mm-hmm. more. I <laughs> well, well, that that is a big part of who you are. Well, Bridie, we're going to take our first break here on Collections by Michelle Brown. And when we get back, come back, we're going to talk about creating change. So we'll be right back. This episode of Collections by Michelle Brown is brought to you in partnership with the Center for Peace Counseling and Holistic Healing Services, bringing balance to your mind, body, and spirit. For more information or to schedule an appointment, visit the Center at www.thecenterforpeacellc.com. Back on Collections by Michelle Brown, when we're talking with Bridie Johnson. Bridie, you know, creating change, I often like to say it's almost like the National Gay Family Reunion, where people come from across the country and you get a chance to meet with other activists and you share ideals and you, and you hear things and you learn and there's a lot of love that comes out of it. I know a couple of couples that met at Creating Change. This year, you're going to be involved in creating change. How did that come about? And what made you think, you know what, I've got something I think I can contribute to this big national conference, which is, in, I believe, in its 30th year. Yeah, you know, Michelle, this isn't my first rodeo. Um, <laughs> I was a trainer for creating change probably 
Oh, it was when I was at Ruth Allen Center, so it's definitely been, let me see, 10, probably 12. When it was in Detroit. When was it in Detroit last? Oh, hmm. Oh, so I, I had. Yeah, mm-hmm. I, was, I, I, I did training, and I couldn't tell you what the topic was that year. Um, I'm sure it had something to do with the center possibly, but, or maybe trans. Uh, maybe it was the research we did. I think it was. It was the research we did for the I Am Survivors Project. Um, mm-hmm. But I'm back, and um, I wanted to go to Washington, D.C. Um, I wanted to go to Creating Change. I've worked with Tim, and he's been the volunteer coordinator for, I don't know how, wait, Tim Wyatt from um, Eastern mm-hmm. Michigan. I love him. And I mm-hmm. always where I fit in and volunteer, help out um, with that training in any way possible and be a part of it because it is very energizing to, to be around people uh, um, LBGT youth trafficking and really talk more about the sex trafficking aspect and a little less about the LBGT needs because usually I have to clean up with some language before I get started and, you know, I, I won't have to do that um, mm-hmm. you know, this time. So I'm excited about that because I only get an hour and a half and I want to pack it full of some good stuff. So um, I just put in a, a proposal. Um, work with the proposal team and you know how it should be granted and and put together and I was honored and selected um, to be in that space I'm just excited and and can't wait to get there well you know that's one of the beauties of it I know that I think there's usually over over 3,000 between three and four thousand people who come there and like you said it's one of those places like it's like family so you don't have to like clean up or or, you know, be politically correct. It's like you're talking to your peeps who want to know what's, what's the real deal. So you don't have to, to clean up or do that. What's the most important thing that you want people to walk away from after they, they finish sitting there with you and hearing what you have to say? You know, um, I want them to walk up there, um, you know, maybe ready to to mentor one youth, to be honest, to to go back and take the information that we discussed and put it into practice in the sense of their personal lives or their professional arenas and just know these kids are in, on every street corner. When you when you pass a street corner and you see a kid with their foot up against a, a, a pole and school's in, if we don't stop and ask them why they're there, we're not really apart. Of the process, and I don't mean for everybody to go, you know, to go out and be to be brighty, but in some senses, you know, go find a cop, go do something safer, um, you know, but engage uh, that individual and make sure they're all right because if not, they're going to keep street walking and getting picked up, and you know, trafficking is real. Like these guys used to be dope dealers, and you got to re up, it's called. So you got to have money to buy dope to sell the shit. Excuse me, I mm-hmm. women or people are free. Mm-hmm. And you can uh, use them and use them and use them and use them, and you don't have to re up unless you know. Unfortunately, they pass, and that's where we're finding you know a lot of them. You know, I think that, and that's something that you really. I mean, like if you're, and not even. I mean, I've been up to the Rufella Center, and they talk about the problems of the youth, but people. Sometimes people are really uncomfortable talking about sex trafficking. It's almost like there are certain things that we know that are happening, particularly happening with our youth, that re- involve sex. 
And it's like they don't want to talk about sex workers. They don't want to talk about sex trafficking. They don't want to talk about but But this is something that's very real. It's very, it's happening, and it's where they are really, really vulnerable. Why is it that you think that, you know, and maybe some people would say, well, we've got so much, you know, we've got to worry about bullying and discrimination like that, that we just don't want to take this on. But why don't we, and how important is it that we, you know, look right here at what's happening to our kids? Right, and I think what it is is it's too close to home, and it's too hard. You know, when it comes to trafficking, we talk, we got to talk about sex trafficking, but we got to talk about human trafficking. So where do you get your beans at? Where do you get your clothes at? Um, you know, when you really start to look at it and depict, I mean, it takes me three hours to buy coffee at the grocery store because I want to make sure I'm not buying beans from kids that were trafficked. Um, mm. You know, um, so it's it's interesting. You can get too deep. Don't fall in like I did. No, but you know, there are websites and and resources that I'll especially give at Creating Change on where you can go to know where your products are, you know, coming from because until we're more aware of things like that, I mean, look at last time you went to the nail salon or the beauty salon and got your hair braided and you ask her how old she is, 18, 18, then the next year, 18, 18, and that's the only thing they say. You know, I mean, human trafficking is huge um, in, on a lot of different scales and we have to, you know, you got to be careful because you get what you pay for in a lot of senses and when we get things cheaper or, and from other places, a lot of times that has trafficking involved. Well, so it's a huge epidemia um, in the community, and and the reason that that people don't want to talk about it is because I found judges. You know, there was a a girl we had in Lansing that was like she kept putting her head down when it got to court. She didn't want to tell us anything, and we found out she was like, "That's my pimp, and that's my John." And the John was the sheriff that was standing at the thing, and the pimp was the judge. So, you mm. know, I mean, yeah, I, you know, it's real, and it's uh, it, you know that guy that, uh, and I don't even want to bring it up, but the guy from Ann Arbor, the football coach that was trafficking those no, kids. Oh, yeah. You know what I'm, you know, I mean, you know, mm-hmm. they don't want to talk about it. People don't want to talk about it because sometimes it ends up in our backyard and, you know, it's hard to talk about and it's hard to control and cure. So, you know, that's, that's part of that. And, you know, I think that, you know, because we often talk about, you know, this intersectionality and you're talking about human trafficking and, you know, and there are things that, that you find that kids are being moved around. And a while back I talked to a woman who was from California and she was talking about not only the food industry, but what happens like how some of the migrant workers, how they're exploited and they're used, you know, to pick pick berries or fruit and, you know, and how they're exploited and used. And when they're no good then, they might end up in the sex trafficking. But often, like you said, people don't think, you know, it's like, oh, well, that's on sale. I'll buy that. Or, you know, I got to look at my bottom line. And, you know, so if I can buy this on sale and, and you don't ask, where does it come from? What does it take for this to to get me this, this cheap price. And, you know, and if you knew what you still wanted, what do you mm. think is a good way for people to, to start, you know, like you said, you don't want them to fall, go all the way down, down the rabbit hole, but what's a good place to start if you want to know, get a better idea of what's happening? Um, 
you know, education. There are free human trafficking trainings all over. You know, I talked about the one that I'm doing in January. I can give you more information about that. I don't really have those specifics on me right now. Um, come to Creating Change and listen to my session there. But there's, um, for healthcare workers and social workers, it's mandatory now to get that training. Um, and, you know, just making yourself aware in situations. Like I said, if something doesn't seem right, um, you know, check on that. You know, where do you, you know, just make, being, um, how do you say, woke um, when you mm-hmm. make and, you know, do the daily things in your life um, to take account for that. There was something when you were uh, talking and I almost wanted to interrupt and not slip my mind, so hopefully it'll come back. Oh, it'll come back. I know it was brilliant. It'll come back. <laughs> you know, I mean, it's just, it's like, really, it's like so much to see and to think about. And I know, but our worlds are interconnected in so many ways. And, you know, that, that we have to think about about all these things. We can't be so so selfish in some ways and, and like, oh, as long as it's okay by me and not recognizing what you what you do. You were talking about how you saw the young lady and it was like, and I think that that's interesting too, that here the people were, who was her pimp and her John were the very ones that she was being put in front of who could pay judgment of that. Yeah. Yeah. How did saying mm-hmm. she was a criminal, they were charging her with some other crimes, of course, and that's why we can't get any, you know, if you hear statistics about trafficking, don't believe them. Um, there's no real statistics there because women are trafficked all the time, but they're um, in jail for other crimes, stealing um, this, that, you know, whatever they're calling it, that we don't have any real numbers to, to work with, for sure. And then there's the other now there's these boys with egos and in in there was a a boy at uh and this was like a it was like west no i don't even want to name a school because i'm not sure but it, um he was a caucasian male in a very good school district and um basically was getting a hundred dollars from some guy to bring the girls in so he would go find a girl that wasn't Sharing very well, low self-esteem, and he would bring her into the um, sex trafficking trade through, um, you know, these little hundred dollars he got for every girl he walked in. So there's all kinds of odd, peculiar ways that, you know, boys are even involved and um, young kids end up involved. Young girls end up trafficking other kids because they don't want to get trafficked, but they have to do what he wants because they're being coerced. So it's it's a very unique topic and very um, comprehensive for sure. You know, I'm trying to think of, I can't think of the name of the organization, but they did a video, and it was out of New York, and they sort of showed how that had happened here. It was like the unpopular girl, the girl who thought she wasn't really cute, and where, like you said, sometimes it was somebody who you would think is like a her home age or who would like lure her into this, and next thing you know, she was away from home, far from home, and often where they would find is like they were getting arrested, and then I know that recently there's been a thing in the news about a young woman who is doing, I forget how many years she's gotten, where she had been trafficked. And when she was sold to somebody else, she killed him. And they treated her like an adult. She's in prison now. And, you know, you hear stories like this all the time. Oh, yeah. Um, 
two things. I remembered my statement before. You were talking about the agriculture industry, and I wanted to take note that um, I did a little research there, and if you want to, you know, if you you do live in a farm community and want to get involved, here's a great way. I mean, the agriculture community in, in Michigan, do you know that there is one person that looks over all the farms in the entire state, upper peninsula and lower peninsula, to make sure they're not migrant workers working? One person, state of Michigan, has to look over all of them and make sure they're in compliance. So I can't imagine his role or the ability to ever um, fairly make sure labor is, you know what I'm saying, is where Mm -hmm is where our standard is for labor, you know, even in our own state. So looking in your backyard, looking in your field where you're, by, you, know, you know, all those kind of things. And then um, another thing that was very interesting to me in some of the more rural parts of the state, because, you know, I'll get in there too. Everybody wants to say it happens in the city, and it does, and it happens in the cities because of the airports. You know, there's big in and out, that kind of stuff. But um, there was a 14-year-old getting passed around. You know, the guys go hunting. And so they pass her around for all the guys while they're hunting. So those are the the two things that that, um, I wanted to say to you. But, yeah, being wrongly jailed and convicted and, um, you know, ostracized and, um, you know, demoralized for things that, number one, remember, sex feels good. Don't ever forget that. Um, As a clinician, you know, uh, I have to work with that aspect with them, you know, too. You know what I'm saying? So there's this. Mm -hmm multifaceted feel bad um, about the feel good that could end up coming along for some, you know, in that process. Well, I imagine, too, it would make it difficult, like you said, if you've been indoctrinated in this and you do that and you have these, I mean, you have these feelings, you like you said, there's part of it that feels good, and then to say, well, we're just going to take them back and, and, and put them back home with mom and dad and go back you know, to that old life, well, you can't always turn back that that hand of time. Who is doing, besides you, okay, um, who is doing the work that, you know, who do you consider like organizations that you would peer with, you would, would work with, who you might refer people to? Who do you hope to see at Creating Change? What type of organizations Oh, gotcha. You know, um, I probably don't expect to see them at Creating Change, but I can tell you if you're talking about Wayne County, what agencies are actively involved. I know Ruth Ellis is involved. I know Mm -hmm. Sister Maria is heavily involved. I know, um, what is that girls program in Southwest Detroit? The name? Uh, Alternative for Girls. Alternative for Girls is heavily involved Mm -hmm. because I'm a part of the Michigan Task Force um, and you know, I was trained by the Michigan Task Force, um, train the trainer, um, and so I've met individuals that work here, you know, in Wayne County. I have not actively become part of the task force in Wayne County yet. You know, I've, I'm new, just been here in like 90 days, you know, I just got into the new mm-hmm. work and so I haven't had the time or the availability, but that's definitely my, my goal next year is to partner and work closer with them, um, you know, just as an individual with some knowledge to share and some things to learn and to collaborate with them however I can. Now, you know, I know you said that you've done a lot of this as volunteer, and I know a lot of people who do this kind of work, and they're doing it as volunteers. How come... 
it hasn't turned into, why isn't it valued to where not only are you doing a volunteer, but you're getting a paycheck for it? I mean, you know, is it not, you know, why? I think there's a lack of funding streams. Now, there is some funding um, in, in some specific, like there's some funding, I believe, in the LBGT community. There's some funding in the Native community. There's some funding in some special populations, um, but there's not very much. And so that's why the work is generally done. I've seen people at churches. I've seen individuals pick it up, and, you know, and they kind of do the work themselves because it's just not, even at the task force, I think they're, you know, their little budget is 86 bucks or something. I mean, there's just no, it's not there. So if I waited for someone to pay me to do the work, um, you know, I would be letting kids slip my fingers by the drawer, so I can't do that and sleep mm -hmm. at night, you know, um, each one teach one. So, you know, if you can need help mm -hmm. in one. Do you think it's because of a lack of awareness by the powers that be that, you know, maybe if somehow or other they recognized how huge a problem is, how a long-term problem, because this isn't just like something you can put a Band-Aid over and everything is hunky-dory. I mean, some of these, these you're going to have to be involved and, and there's going to be need for services like long-term. Do you think that if there was some, some type of a greater awareness that you would see more people putting funding into these programs? Um, you know, with current people in charge. Well, yeah, I, 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 maybe after a, after after 2018, I don't, Nathan. I don't, mm -hmm. I don't mean, if he's listening, <laughs> I digress, mm -hmm. but I see that, I don't see that happening in the near future, um, mm -hmm. you know, by any means necessary, because, you know, remember, the rule of the predominantly female ailment remember we don't value our females yet anyway so all of that has to um unfortunately play in and you know and i think that it's also still because we're in this era of you know right to life to death and you know so quote unquote christians to where we want to immediately look at some of these people as bad, label them as bad, as sinners, or somehow or other deserving of being treated less than human. And so, you know, it's sort of like a whole lot of people have to be woke before before we start to see a change and to really value and appreciate it. Numbers-wise, okay, you know, the first thing you want to think of, I mean, in sex trafficking, you think of it as being a female problem. But across the board in human trafficking, is it sort of equal opportunity or is it more women who are victims of this? Um, you know, I never want to say it's all women. I know, you know, um, put it like this, I know it's happening to boys too. It's happening to gay boys, straight boys. It's happening... Um, you know, all over the globe. So I never like to put it out there because I just don't have those statistics. I haven't been able to do that work, and I'd hate to um, – I'd rather say I don't know than give information, mm -hmm. you know, all the time because, I, you know, I, 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 I love that when people listen, so I want them to keep that honor um, and, and keep those truths going. But I would say probably, you know, if I had to guess, some, you know, 30 – some percent male, um, and I say that because there's a lot of labor. You know, think about labor. Mm -hmm. Men have 
So labor trafficking is real. And so I would put it closer to 30 or, you know, maybe 35% male dominated. Mm -hmm. Then, you know, we have our trans individuals in there, and they would have 10% like we would normally see probably, and then the rest will be female. Mm -hmm. Wow. Okay, we're going to take our second second break here on Collections by Michelle Brown and Bridie. We'll be right back because, you know, we're coming into the home stretch. I want to find out a little bit more about what you're doing, creating change. So we will be right back. Collections by Michelle Brown airs every Thursday at 7 p.m. You can subscribe now and listen to the podcast on Blog Talk Radio, iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud. Be sure to like the Collections by Michelle Brown Facebook page and mark your calendar so you never miss an episode. back with Bridie Mae Johnson. I like that. Bridie Mae. Usually you put it down there, but I know uh, does the Mae, is that a family name or is it just... That, that uh-huh. is my sparks my smile. That is my uh-huh. grandma. M-A-E, down south May. <laughs> mm-hmm, mm-hmm. No, I think it's pretty. Um, so when is creating change? Um, creating change is end of January. I believe it's the 24th to the 28th this mm-hmm. year. Washington, D.C. It's going to be live, as always. Do you know what day you will be presenting on? You know what? I do. I think I even sent you that email. I believe it's Thursday at 1030, but that okay. is still here, and they've told me that because mm-hmm. we're switching around and, you know, this and that, and, like, people, mm-hmm. I guess, what they want and the space and that, um, sometimes that could change. Mm-hmm. Well, you know, I know that it, it's the one thing about creating change that as you, people get there, they're pretty good at letting you know where you're supposed to be, who you're supposed to be with and meeting that. I think it's going to be a great networking experience. So in January, you're talking about going to Saginaw. Is this like a permanent move or temporary? Oh, no, I'm just um, I'm just going for the day. If my daughter- oh, okay. I'm going to tell him about it, and just um, presenting and doing a panel um, to help educate nurses, doctors there in that area. And what else is Bridie Mae Johnson up to these days? (laughs) Bridie Mae Johnson, M-A-E, has um, been so honored as to take a position as the behavioral health clinical supervisor at American Indian Health and Family Services. And it's an organization that I have wanted to join for years, and um, I am extremely excited about it. Um, And that's why I'm culturally humble, because I'm doing more learning about culture than I am teaching at this point. Um, And that's been amazing, too. Mm -hmm. 
And is that in, is that using some of your social work skills? Oh, yes. Um, the Behavioral mm-hmm. Health Department um, at American Indian Health and Family Services is, uh, we just actually got a contract with uh, Wayne County Community Mental Health. And so we do wraparound services, and we'll be doing um, clinical behavioral services for Native individuals and um, individuals in Wayne County. Uh, we actually service nine counties, but Wayne County we have a contract with, so um, the other counties uh, are you know can still come. But we do oh plenty of other programming that I'm not actually involved in. We have um, Healthy Start, so we have Early Head Start. We have um, maternal infant health programming, they have food programming, community gardens, um, they have a medicine clinic, so they have traditional medicine and western medicine, so we have an actual doctor upstairs, a medical director, a nurse practitioner, um, some MAs, and then we do some more of the traditional healing and energy healing and those kind of things as well, so it's just amazing to learn and to be a part of a group of individuals that um, are so rich. Are you able to incorporate some of your background with the LGBTQ community in this work? Yeah, they're actually going to have me train the staff um, on LGBTQ stuff. But they were already, I think they've had James Toys been there years Mm -hmm. ago had a couple other individuals so it is an open space like when I went there I felt very comfortable you know I told them in the interview that you know I was married to Janella and blah 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 and they were all very supportive um there's uh two spirit posters all over the walls I see it in the youth programming and the adults so um I felt very um honored to be there I do know that they do still need education the same way I'm educating on my native culture and history you know they um, could use a little LBGT 101 or 202, however you see it. So um, they've asked me, and I'm excited to, to work with them and, and do some of that. And I would really love a co-trainer. Maybe you'll come out and help me with that. Oh, well, maybe I will. You know, I think, too, I think that afterwards, I think that it will be, you know, because often you hear in the LGBTQ spaces when they're talking, and they'll go like, oh, well, you know, gay people aren't new, and the Native Americans had two-spirited people. But that level of understanding and knowing about that culturally, other than to say it, I don't think that there, there is that, you know. And so I could see where it could, it could be like a two-way street at some point in time. And maybe for all we, we don't know, there isn't a large, you know, like we have LGBT Detroit, which is primarily African-American, um, there's a Latino group, but, you know, where are our brothers and sisters who are Native American? And I think that that would be something worthwhile to see. Well, Bridie, it sounds like you are going to have a really busy January. I am. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. the truth. <laughs> I am. I am really glad to have you back in in this area and hope to incorporate some of these many things that you're doing into future episodes of Collections by Michelle Brown. And, you know, because all the things that you're doing are so important, and it's part of this broader community. So we've got you back, and we're going to hang on to you. Yes, I'm back, and I ain't going nowhere. (laughs) (laughs) 
so yes, I'm excited, and I would love to come back anytime you would honor me with, with that privilege and, and speak with you again, and that's on air, off air, anywhere. Well, I'm taking that down, and I will definitely do it. Well, Bridie, I want to thank you for your time this afternoon. Um, I am looking forward to seeing you at Creating Change. I'll be back. I'll sit in the back and go, I know her, I know her. <laughs> Pardon me? I said, I'm still hoping we go together. Well, that's, that's, I'm working on that too, you know. Um, but um, I will talk to you before then and we will work that out. But again, thank you. Uh, I do intend to come by. I mean, I know there's so many things that are interesting to me about the work that you're doing and I'd like to, to learn more about it myself. Um, and I thank you for holding it down. Every place that you go, when you land, I mean, when you landed in Atlanta, you were doing the work. You continually to do the work wherever you land. And that's how we create change, really. So I thank you for that, Bridie. Uh, and I just want to say one quick thing. Thank you for honoring me with, I don't know if you ever remember or not, but you honored me with an award that gave me tears. And I just wanted to thank you for acknowledging me and for being such a strong supporter of me through my life. And you are an amazing soul, Michelle Brown. Thank you. Well, thank you, Bridie. Well, um, you have a good holiday. If I don't talk to you before, I'll talk to you during. <laughs> Um, or after, right around then, but um, thank you. All righty, have a good one. Happy holidays. Uh, happy holidays to you, Bridie, and to your family. Thank you. Yours too. <laughs> okay, bye-bye. We've come to the end of another episode of Collections by Michelle Brown. If you've never been to Creating Change... It's going to be in Washington, D.C. this year. It is the 30th anniversary of Creating Change. There, it is affordable. There are ways that you can go and volunteer and be a part of community. I always tell everyone, if you're LGBTQ or an ally, at some point in your life, you need to attend Creating Change. You will come back renewed, inspired, Inspired and ready to roll up your sleeves and get to work. So that is at the end of January. I will be posting some information about Creating Change on the Collections by Michelle Brown page. So you can follow it. You can follow the links and you can register and become a part of it. And if you hear that it's coming to your city, become part of that host committee and make it your own. We had one here in Detroit and it was phenomenal. So if you've missed any of the past episodes by Collections of Michelle Brown, you can always go back and listen to them again by following the podcast on iTunes, Stitcher, Blog Talk Radio, or SoundCloud. And please follow us on Facebook so you can always stay in touch and know what we're going to be talking about in the near future. I want to thank again my guest, Bridie Mae Johnson, and invite you to join me next week when I'll introduce you to another amazing individual who's living between the lines, standing boldly in the crosshairs of their intersectionality 
and Creating Change right here on Collections by Michelle Brown.